Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot. Hi, I'm Derek. And I'm Drew. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story contexts because it sticks to our brain better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. Derek, why don't you join me in song here as we set ourselves off into the world of parks and recreation. Bye-bye, little Sebastian. Missed you in the saddest fashion. I love that, man. There's so many classic, classic clips out of Parks and Recreation. We couldn't help but find one of our favorite episodes here to talk about on today's Wonder Tour. I just made this chair, Leslie, for this Wonder Tour, and nobody in the government helped me do it. Not even Tammy. All right. (laughs) I just had to do that before we jumped in totally, completely here. Ron's not very, uh, Ron's not really in this episode too much, which is weird. He's normally one of the central kind of focal points of Parks and Recreation. He's like what a lot of people think of. But today we're talking about Kaboom. (laughs) Boom. It's like season two, episode six, I think. Right. Yeah. You got it. This is this one always sticks out to me when I was just like going through the repertoire of Parks and Recreation episodes in my head of what can we talk about? Where's the leadership concepts? This one just jumped right out at me. There were a couple other ones, Derek, that we talked about, right? I mean, there's some interesting ones. We talked about the putting your mouth on the water fountain. <laughs> Obviously. Oh, yeah. Very innovative. <laughs> Duke Silver. There's a, there's all kinds of great things we could pull out here. But Kaboom, it just felt right. I don't know what it is. Kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. It's also just really fun to say. Oh, I love that word. I think it encapsulates the excitement of doing something big. Oh, and it, it maps on nicely. I'm going to use your map on phrase here, but it maps on nicely to Gartner's hype cycle. So if you think about the, the hype cycle, it's this cycle, you can look it up, but it's about technology. And I really think you can use it for pretty much anything new in life, anything that shocks you and excites you, kind of like a roller coaster. You go up a hill. And you get to the top, and they call that the peak of inflated expectations. And then you go down, because you have to go down, because everything has balance. And uh, you get down to the bottom, and you have the trough of disillusionment, which is where, with technology, you get kind of depressed. You're like, "Um, I don't think I can use this for what I thought I could use this for. And then, no, my friend, there is the plateau of productivity. And that is where you come out of the trough. Or the so, pit, shall we say, because yeah, I'm pretty or, sure that Leslie's yeah. fascination with the pit also goes through this Gartner hype cycle. <laughs> that, 
that's exactly right. So I think we could map that the whole episode really onto the Gartner hype cycle in a way. And, and maybe we should just for fun here at times, but you come out of the pit. You do eventually come out of the pit if you stay committed to it. Now, many people, they, they kind of get in the pit, they stay in the pit and they're like, and, and then you just kind of forget about it. And you let it go. And that is lost time, lost resources spent, and you really didn't learn anything from it. And really, well, that's the different things to different people, right? Because to Andy, oh, yeah. it's like this home that he loves, but he hates. And it's like defines him, but he doesn't want it to define him to Leslie. The pit is this obstacle that she's going to overcome in her journey to Anne. The pit is an eyesore and something that reminds her of Andy falling in the pit. And so it's like it's weird, right? The pit looks different to different people. But if we liken the pit here to kind of like that that trough of disillusionment with whether it's with technology or whatever, right? I mean, there's troughs of disillusionment in relationships, right? Where you get to the point where you're like, you're past the fascination stage with somebody and you you get to the point where the like the grading part before you like start to break through some of the, with them, you have the deep conversations, you're able to, to work with them on the, some of the things that bother you. You have that like trough of disillusionment where you're like, man, this person's not exactly who I thought they were. <laughs> I mean, you know, it happens. Yeah, like all across the board. You're right. This is a this is a pattern that repeats over and over and over. So why don't we start out? We can go through and quickly, I'd say, go through the episode because it's it's quick. It's 22 minutes, but there's so many different fun things in there. They start you out in the middle of an ongoing kaboom, right? So talk me through that. Oh yeah, the the intro there with kaboom is classic right there's just all this stuff going on there's people everywhere everybody's got different roles and you got paul Shear, um his name's keith in the episode front and center and he's orchestrating this whole kind of madness that's going on here and he's just driving everybody forward with this kaboom spirit that he's got paul is he's a hilarious actor i mean everything he's in he's he's really funny in I won't say like he's not like the most I don't know how to say it. I don't want to be I'm not being mean at all here. I really like him. <laughs> he's hilarious. I think of when he was in 10 Items or Less, a movie a show that probably nobody's seen before. But he plays this like uh, this ice skate dancer guy <laughs> in a couple episodes. And he is absolutely hilarious. He's perfect for the role. There's just something about Paul Shear. Like you kind of know he you know that you're not in the, the episode. It's not like this suspension of disbelief is going on but he's just so funny that you're just like oh man i I would love to hang out with this guy i want to be kabooming right now you know his name is keith keith k-e-e-f and all this time you know i had thought before i had recently rewatched it that it was keith so he's uh he's an interesting character really wily right and i think that's that's part of it because that's very in in many ways kind of antithetical to leslie's style a little bit because he's more haphazard. He appears that what he's doing isn't really, it doesn't have a lot of structure. And Leslie is like top to bottom structure, top to bottom, left to right. She's got to have it planned out. And I mean, of course, like they have this persona for her on the show. That's like, she gets all this stuff done, never sleeps. She's just completely different from this guy where he's just like, I don't even know where the plan's at, honestly, during this kaboom. I'm not really sure. It's like people just know where to put things, right? Can you imagine 
if it really took place, how possibly disorganized the whole thing would be because he's just running around giving gift cards. Hey, da, 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 da. Good job. You're like, did I even do the right thing? Like, I don't even know what I'm doing. You don't see any instructions out. Like Ron, one point. He's like, faster, faster. Yeah. Yeah. He's like twisting a bolt. How's Ron even know how to put the thing together? I'd be like, where are the instructions at? But that's not, that's not what you see in there. And I think that's characteristic. If we take a second here and just look at this, I think that's very characteristic of somebody projecting something. And usually when projections are being made, what's behind it is extremely thin and flimsy. But it's a good show. We'll get back to that a little bit later about how, how it's a good show and, and how he's making a good projection here. Leslie yeah, is a, clearly yeah. impressed, right? She's clearly impressed with his execution. She is. She is. It makes a mark on Leslie. And that takes us into kind of the second phase of the episode where Leslie is like completely rethinking how she's going to approach this park pit that they have. So she gets all the people together and she has the whiteboard. And of course, she's making fun of Jerry and stuff like that. She's trying to figure out a way to kaboom her life. She wants to take some of that kaboom spirit and apply it to the parks department, which is valiant. It definitely, I've been there many times where I'm just like, I leave a conference or something. I'm like, how do I get this spirit like back into my organization? We need more of this. The conference infusion. I mean, talk about peak of inflated expectations. Oh, that's exactly what gets people worked up, right? They get that new idea and it comes in and it's like, it's like to quote George uh, Costanza, right? To be 12 shot. And he gets all excited and, you know, you get all this energy. It is it is important to get excited when you see new ideas. And that's it. It is challenging, though, right? I struggle with that sometimes is how much of this am I going to try to implement in my own environment? How much of this am I going to try to implement? And I think that's that's where Leslie she's she gets whimsical sometimes, too. But it comes in more controlled spurts throughout the show. She's very she kind of jumps into things quickly at times, as long as she's checked out all the risk. And Keith, we get the impression that he really doesn't do so much of that. He uses the over, like, exciting kind of aspect of it to really drive and just punch through any kind of risk that may be there. Does did he even have that? Did he even own the land? How did he build a park on? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Like you literally just skim the surface with Keith and it, it doesn't seem like there's very much structure underneath of that. And by the end of this, I hope we can figure out what that means because I'm still working through in my own head exactly what that means. So I'm hoping by talking to you that we can kind of figure out like what the takeaways are from this. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, let's keep going in the story because we got got Leslie. She's wanting to take action, right? And she, uh, she takes Mark's advice. <laughs> yeah, I know. Really is. He's a rule follower and he's like, he's very much uh, what I can tell is he's an Enneagram five and Enneagram fives. If you know something about them, it's that they, they are all about conserving resources. And so he very carefully says this, and this is not advice he would take himself, not by any stretch. And you see that with him, he's quiet and he'll rarely say something. But in this case, he says, do you want to do it? Just do it without permission. Just, just do the thing. There was a good quote. What'd she say? Now, who do I, what is it? Who do I ask? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah what, was, that, what was the quote? You got a good one on that one. She had a good one. 
<laughs> so who gives me the go ahead to not ask for permission? <laughs> there you go. There you go. And and that <laughs> that is it's it's hard, right? I mean, it's definitely hard. You get to that point where you're like, how do you read the situation to know that? And then and it's you have to know you have to have a model of the people you work with, of the organization you work for, what the values are. So I think we can get back to that later. But Leslie clearly struggles with that. But she goes ahead and rents the excavator, right? And she makes special hard hats in Leslie style. I won't, uh, I won't speak to those, but she, she gets Ann in on it. Of course, Ann's just kind of like, she just goes with the flow pretty much when it comes to Leslie. I mean, how could you not? <laughs> yeah, Leslie's kind of just always bringing everybody into things, which is awesome, right? She's a great leader. She's a leader that we all want to be like in that way. She's just, she's an inspirational leader, right? She gets people excited about the things that she's excited about. Why else was anybody excited about this, this pit that she's <laughs> fascinated with, right? It's because Leslie's so interested in it. And by the end, she's even got people like Ron on board. <laughs> and that's hard to do because Ron, he's also kind of like, leave me alone. <laughs> he might even be a five as well, you know, because he wants to stay. He wants to be, you know, just literally wants to conserve energy all the time and save it for his woodworking and, and other things like that. So she if she if you can mobilize somebody like that, you've got a special skill. And she definitely does. Now, in this episode, we don't really see much of Ron. He had some different. Uh, it was pretty funny. He came up, came up with some adjectives, basically, that he's like, you screwed up here. This is kajanked. I don't know. I mean, whatever he said, it was pretty funny. And he kind of just put the prefix of K-A on pretty much everything that he could think of to let her know that he is not happy that she went and got this excavator. And and why, why is the problem with the excavator? She tried to fill in the pit, right? And Andy's at the bottom of it <laughs> in, in his metaphorical and literal pit that he's in right now in his life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and actually, this is kind of why we ended up here, because we did Guardians of the Galaxy last week, and we were like, oh, and Chris Pratt's hilarious. So we just started thinking about Parks and Rec, and so now, now we're here because we're really kind of here because of Chris Pratt, actually. He kind of brought to the, the forefront that he's an interesting guy, and he has he plays some good characters. So And she, she pretty much nails it. She's like, he's just a big baby big naked baby i think that's what she said at some point in the episode no, th- better yet she says you're dealing with her uh, she says you're dealing with a grown man who thinks like a gopher which is <laughs> <Just> perfect right <laughs> that was, it, like they didn't have to like put that out there so clearly but they did it's like oh my gosh just mapping it right onto the pit metaphor <laughs> oh yeah it's perfect it's perfect so i don't know uh, drew tell me you know tell me what happens after he gets hit with some dirt yeah so we'll the, I mean, again, we have Paul Shear already making a guest appearance in this episode, and then we get John H. Benjamin coming in as the lawyer for the government, working with Leslie. He's always so funny, and he, he plays the he plays the same role, kind of like Paul Shear, but it's so good. And so that we have like the lawyer back and forth going on, where Andy is you know threatening to get a lawyer, but again, it's all in his mind. It's all about Anne. He's just trying to figure out how to get back together with Anne because he's fixated on that. That's his pit, right? Is is Anne? And so as as we work through it, we we've learned that Andy is extremely loyal. That's one of his strongest traits. And so his loyalty to Leslie is longer is stronger in the end. And and Leslie does care about him. She's a good leader, so she's not just trying to. Not just trying to get him not to sue the government. She's also trying to help him. 
in his life, help him get out of his metaphorical pit that he's in. So they work together. They end up coming up with a scheme, you could say, where they're kind of going to play John H. Benjamin into filling in the pit instead of in so that Andy doesn't sue Pawnee City government. It works out. It's a they end up filling in the pit and then it, they just have a flat. <laughs> what do they call it? Like it's like a sandbox, basically. I don't know what it is. A sandbox? Oh, you mean you're talking about the the lot itself? Is that what yeah, you're saying? Lot. In the end, they have it. They don't have a park at the end, right? They just it's like. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just leveled. And anybody who's leveled ground before, I mean, <laughs> if you've done it without uh, equipment, it's you know that is an insane amount of work. I would have to say, for being level ground, when I saw it at the end, I was really impressed with it because it was raked and it was it just looked real nice. But yeah, it's a it's a blank it's a blank slate. It's interesting. I, I'm kind of kind of getting a metaphor here, which is because this is what Wonder Tour is about. But you do all this work and sometimes you just work to dig yourself out of the hole so you can have a blank slate. Uh, blank slates are actually pretty valuable. And maybe we'll talk about those in the future because I think that's an interesting topic. And it, they don't really talk much more about it after that because they they kind of surmounted their challenge. Right. They, they, they filled in the pit. What's Finally. that debt look like, though? What is that? Because like we might call that one type of a pit that you have is like technical debt, right? For those who aren't in the <laughs> technology and yeah. software space, technical debt basically is just you have kind of aging architectures, you have aging platforms that you have to support. And as a result, it, it costs you more than it would to support a newer platform. And it's also limiting to you. So you kind of find yourself in this pit where it's like, we really just want to create more value and just like put put money into enhancements and new features that our customers are going to love and stuff. But instead, we have to, you know, find a way to put money into just modernizing things. And and like, we're not going to get a park at the end of it. We're just going to not have a pit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just getting to the point where you can keep things steady and and maybe, I mean, I think you're. It depends on how gro- uh, how aggressive you are with your growth, but getting to a flat line on what you have and then trying to get to a linear state. So I think the linear states after that where you build steadily and you but I guess because we're in a world where everything falls apart constantly. I think things fall apart at different rates. So everything's always falling apart. People are leaving the organization. People have different goals and things kind of. I'd love to talk about this in the future, but it's like, you know, things kind of come together and then they fall apart and they come together and they fall apart. When you get out of these pits, you get to a place where it's stable, but don't accept that stability forever. <laughs> it's not like in this episode that the pit's going to dig itself again. That's not going to happen. But I do think it's a good lesson to learn from that is that you do a lot of work to get yourself out so that you can do something solid and and have the prospect of building a good foundation that won't be shaken apart and fall apart on you so yeah the technical debt that's a good one i think when you think about human capital debt gotta have maybe a big idea to attract investors to go out there and do an aqua hire or whatever right to kind of maybe fill in a particular pit so i'm there's tons of things we can think about with that for sure well, filling in the pit, yeah. They, oh, man, the, the just the metaphor of the hole that you've got to fill in has probably been used a million different times. And we could be talking about a dozen different movies as we talk about holes. We should actually potentially go back. I don't know. That, that'll probably be a, a long time in the future to go back and do the old Shia LaBeouf movie. But 
there's definitely some good concepts in that one. Okay, we can keep on going. We'll probably come back around to some of this stuff, though. The pit is really interesting. I'm I'm mostly fixating on w- how people see the pit in their minds here instead of just, like, assuming that... I think the mistake to make, maybe, is to assume that everybody sees the pit the same because I know that in, in like, the line of work that I'm in, right, maybe I see a certain pit and this is like a barrier to us being able to transform our organization or whatever. And so we got to first fill in the pit and then we can keep on going. But the way that other people view it who have different backgrounds and experiences, they might see a completely different pit or they might not see the pit the same way. So part of it is this sales process that if you really see the pit a certain way, like you have to help others to see the pit the same way. And that's what Leslie's been doing these first two seasons of Parks and Rec really is kind of she's been on this mission to be like, hey, what about the pit? Look at this pit. People are getting hurt in this pit. (laughs) And she puts all her energy into it. That's one thing. She does stay fixated on knocking that thing out. And that's what good leaders do. Stay on message. And I think she does an excellent job of staying on message. I think where she, though, is stalling out, and this is where Keith comes in, right? Keith shows her in one baller move that you can generate all the excitement and you can get that thing going. Now, it's it's funny because Keith, he kind of has a lot already in Eagleton because Eagleton's perfect. Isn't Eagleton like the perfect world? And And so every time you go to Eagleton, everything's already flattened out. There are no pits because they have tons of resources. But that aside, he's able to generate the buzz that is required. And in some way, she kind of takes offense deeply inside and she gets a little jealous. I think that's really what drives her in this. She's jealous of the fact that Keith is able to do this and she isn't because she's the one who doesn't sleep. She's the one who gets all this stuff done. And why can't I get it done, right? It's clearly because at times, I don't know, is it should she that she can't compromise enough to broker a deal? Who knows why she's in this situation right now? It's also funny how Mark tells her, don't even broker. <laughs> He's just like Mr. Silo thinker. I think you have to have brokering, but I don't think she really learns that because she certainly doesn't talk to Ron or anybody else about it and get some different points of view. Like you said, get some points of view on the pit. A good leader would have gone around and kind of did some convincing. She just convinces herself and she takes one data point. And I personally can't recommend that as a leadership path to take in that case. So but think about who she's, she's working with. Think about yeah. like think about this. All the people that you've worked with in the past that you 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 end up looking back and being like, oh my goodness, they were kind of like blocking me at every turn. It's like, that's who she's working with in the government. And Bonnie, basically, like these people yeah. do not want to do anything pretty much. They get the city councilman that she's working with. What is his name? Jamie, Jamie, Jamie or whatever. Like these people are just absolutely like just stockade. I mean, blockading any work, any progress in this town. They're just trying to keep it as is. I mean, and that is very typical, which is, you know, obviously the whole show is predicated on that small town with a bunch of weird murals. (laughs) They're so weird. All those murals are so weird. They had some time to do that, didn't they? And I mean, I I know you're right. You're right. I mean, there is a, a stereotypical like mob of people that are they're just more about stagnation. I mean, obviously, this town is quite elaborate in its city hall. Uh, for the size of the of the of the city, right? It's there's some some weird like mismatch going on here. 
I mean, she's definitely up against it. And in Eagleton, they don't, they just make a plan, make it look good and get it done. And it's because they have huge amounts of resources. So she convinces Andy to kind of, she leverages him. And I think that this is part of the thread that we've got going on and the story that we'll harken back to once we have the moment. So she has an interaction with Andy. I'll just put it like that for now. But there's much more to it than that. And I want to talk about that in contrast with our with our moment. But Andy basically says, look, I'm not going to sign anything until you agree to fill the pit in. They got it. They got the pit filled in. And then we got our moment. You ready for your moment? I'm ready okay. for the moment. Hit me. So you got, yeah, you got Keith. He's on a speedboat at the end. He's got his little yacht hat. And by the way, I, I've been listening to Yacht Rock Radio. That's the best channel. It's on XM, but it's just like the best music ever. <laughs> uh, you look that up sometime if you are interested, but it's it's the perfect soundtrack if you do, if you are out on the ocean. But he's out on the ocean. He's He's just like, Kaboom was just something I made up. It's just an elaborate prank. Right there in that moment, I think, obviously, you have two, I don't know, this is just my guess, but you have like two kind of feelings that you feel or two two kind of understandings you come to. One is, that was really funny. I think that's hilarious, right? And, and then the next one is, if you really think about it for a second, is that this guy is a manipulator. That's our moment today because... It, it makes you think about it. You started out, you saw the kaboom moment. Leslie was inspired, and but she was inspired on a lie. And she goes and does all these things. There are second order consequences from the first order consequence that you have know, just being inspired by kaboom. And then all these things happened to Leslie and all these other people because this guy was playing a joke. He got his buzz off of it. And then all these other things happened, and which he is not responsible for. And it tells me that, you know, there's a there's a lesson of manipulation in here, and we'll get to that. Do you have anything to add on this moment, Drew? Yeah, to me, it feels like you're slowly like moving up your gears as you watch this episode, and you think you have it figured out, and then you hit the credit scene with Keith on the boat, and it like. You, you come to like a jolting stop, basically, <laughs> you know, it's like you're on the Tower of Terror or whatever at Disney World and like you're going up, you're going up, you're going up. The anticipation is there. And then suddenly like, boom, you drop and you're just like, wait, like, did I do I know what's going on? Am I in control? Actually, did is the moral what I thought it was in this whole thing? So to me, it was like almost a jarring moment that like stops you and you, it, you know, it'd be easy to pass it by. And I probably did the first few times I watched it. But that now that I'm coming at it from a Wonder Tour perspective here and kind of slowing down, I'm seeing that I, ha- I, I can't help but not try to come away with some sort of substance out of this because it's so interesting the way that Keith operates here. Immediately, I don't want to say that what he, how he's operating is 100% wrong, right? It's definitely effective in certain ways. So I want to, and in terms of trying to become, you know, we always say we're trying to be magnanimous leaders on here. How do we become magnanimous leaders? How do we learn from Keith here as the mentor? I think it starts with how trying to see things through his eyes and the way that he sees the world to me is very thin it's so shallow 
he's he he's kind of seeing everything trivially. He doesn't see the depth. He's only skating on the surface, which is kind of funny. I don't know that it's intended or not, but that is exactly what he's doing on that speedboat at the end. He's kind of just like it's like he's on a jet ski and it's just like he's just riding the high, baby. <laughs> he's yeah. there's something about him. He's skimming right across the surface. I really like that that metaphor. I think naturally, if you don't and you're doing Keefe type things, I think that's when guilt can grip you and keep you from proceeding. So I think you're right. You're absolutely right that you have to be on the surface to execute something like this. And you can't think about second order consequences at all. All you can think about are first order ones and saying, I made a lot of people happy today. Bada bing, bada boom. And you move on and you go to the next thing, right? Uh, the next prank. I think you're onto something there with that. And so what do we, what do we call in what he did? I mean, my gut tells me this is like manipulation. I think there's something of manipulation to it. It's almost like he's fooling himself too, though. It's not just manipulation because while to him, the purpose behind all of this is kind of a joke there's actually like way deep down, there's a deeper purpose, right? The people, you know, he's not just selling these people on kabooming. And that just because he's inspirational when he talks, that's part of it. But it's because they're building a playground for kids, right? There's there's something that they're doing. And he, he says at the end, he's like, for my next prank, I'm going to build a hospital in like a low income area in China. And you're, you're like, he's doing the right things for the wrong reason, basically. And, and we've all kind of seen that before and i think we've all been a part of that probably before at different varying levels in our lives so for me i just look at it and i'm like how, how what do we take away from this guy it just gives me it gives me feelings of when i read the prince machiavelli's the prince right and the the, the there's so many different things in that in that book to take away il principe the, the key one that everybody always talks about is, does the end justify the means, right? This was kind of the popularizing of that idea. Does the end justify the means? And it's played on in a lot of popular media. Over time, we see different characters and different authors interpret it in different ways. And if you're not too familiar with this, we do want to try to do a good job of level setting as we introduce concepts here. The, the idea of does the end justify the means is basically... Uh, purpose it's, it's perfectly illustrated in how Keith operates because it's like does the building of the playground or the hospital justify the fact that he's lying to people basically i mean it's hard right it's hard to it's hard to be tough on somebody who does something good and i think that's one of the reasons why they maybe spun it that way at the very end which was like i'm gonna trick people into doing good stuff I mean, I would I mean, I would say magnanimously, you know, from a magnanimous perspective, right, where the, the means definitely matter to a magnanimous leader. I mean, I think we're we are establishing that the manner in which you do things, how you treat people, how much you let them in on things. It, it's totally important and it's totally important not to. And I want to say something about transparency for a second, because I think we've got this like transparency has become this like really trite phrase in our culture. I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to, I'm going to, okay. So there are different levels of transparency. Here's what I think is it, and this is where you can kind of get into trickiness with it, but people tend to have these 
They say it's transparent, but it's actually like different levels of illusion. And they don't necessarily line up. Transparency is you can see a correspondence between the layers. On the outside, it's this. And then one level down, it's a little more detail, but it's the same thing. And another level down, it's it's the same thing, but it's a little more detail, et cetera. And that's that's actual transparency where you can see all the way down the layers of things, right? And there's consistency. It's still interesting, right? He's doing good things and he's tricking people into doing it. He's more like opacity. (laughs) I mean, he's he's transparent to the point, but then he's opaque after that, right? He's not letting them in on anything else. Following your following your kind of picture that you're painting there with the top level and then the bottom level and kind of the the opacity in between that that does feel like how Keith is operating like at the bottom level there's something right that's happening and at the top level that he's getting people to buy in and he's selling a good story in the middle there's very questionable ways that it's connected together this is kind of a playful way to look at does the end justify the means so there's there's definitely more kind of nuanced and difficult things that come into it. This one, nobody's lives are at stake necessarily, right? It's just a matter of, of is it okay that he kind of lies and manipulates in order to be able to do this? And also, is it just okay that he's kind of playing games with people's time and lives, right? And how is this, I mean, obviously something I've got coming out of it and kind of, we're kind of heading into, well, let's let's wrap up this mentor piece on him, right? As a mentor, you've got to be wary of someone who does not consider the means to get there. It could be, I don't know, they use emotions, certain kinds of emotions. I'm not saying it's all anger or it's all sadness. So you could you can manipulate with sadness. You can manipulate with anger. You can manipulate with happiness. You can manipulate with every emotion you have. It, it really is depends on the, the person or the target that you pick. <laughs> and I think that's something to be very aware of as you conduct your day and watch your mentor, watch how your mentor does it. I mean, there's, there are mentors that operate emotionless and they operate purely on data. Well, that could be construed as stonewalling. Someone can stonewall with just a pure data mentality. So there's lots of different ways to manipulate. It it really is about your motivation. And so you got to watch your mentor's motivation I don't think I would have trusted Keith personally. I'm just putting myself in these shoes, right? If I'm there on the playground, this is always a fun game for me, but put myself in the playground. I'm watching Keith. I'm watching him jump around. I'm watching him like hop over to people. I I immediately, all the warning bells are going to go off because I'm just like, how can I take this guy seriously? That's my first thing. How can I take him seriously? How do I know that he's got a serious plan for this? I don't see any blueprints. I see a lot of branding. I think that's another one. It's like flashy branding. I see him handing out gift cards. I'm just I'm immediately I'm like warning bells are going off. And I can't I mean I personally wouldn't be able to verbalize exactly what it is. Obviously, I think that's part of his uh part of his act, which is he pops up and he disappears, right? And so he goes so fast that you don't get a chance to latch on. To the thing that he's really doing. And I want to say that about mentors is that if you've got, and we talked about this in the Batman episode, in episode 10, right? Which which is you have the sexy mentor, right? Okay, you've got to think about how that person got to that point. And Keith is is a little bit on that spectrum. He's kind of like Razal going away. Kind of there's something appealing there, something that you I would say envy. In some way, right? We envy the energy, you envy the flash of it all. Am I right? 
You envy the skill set. Yeah, Ross is a good example. There's other examples, too. I mean, go back to the Interstellar episode that we recorded. Dr. Brand, Michael Caine's character, He, we have that exact same kind of thing going on with him where he's trying to save the human race, but does the end justify the means? We find out that, spoilers for Interstellar, but we find out that he lied to them and that he had solved the equation a long time ago. And it's kind of heartbreaking for the people that were following that leader, right? Because they understand that he was kind of manipulating them. He thought that that was what it took to save humanity. But in, so he, he had that opaque layer. He At the bottom level, he was right. He was correct. He was focused on the right purpose. And at the top level, he was allowing you to see just a little bit in. But in between, he created that opacity. And that that's what's dangerous is when you have that opacity in between because it means it opens up the kind of opens up a can of worms for a lot of corruption type of things to happen, basically corruption, manipulation. When, Like you said, when there's not transparency all the way down and it's it's not kind of a unified viewpoint that's connected back to a purpose and core values and a vision and stuff like that, it's really hard to be able to trust that what's happening, the what that's happening is is actually good. Legit. Yeah, because you don't get a full picture of the what that's going on. As you're talking there, I was just thinking about, like you said, how how do you get from point A to point B? And I think this is where we can bring in influence. And I think influence really is the antidote to manipulation because influence puts the other person in the proper place of really celebration, right? Influence celebrates others. Manipulation looks at it, looks at them as fuel to be consumed. You're expendable in manipulation. Influence, you are not expendable. Influence, you are essential. And I think that is the counterbalance to manipulation. And influence is something that I think a lot of people, tell me where I'm wrong here, but I think a lot of people discount the influence that they have. And they think that influence is reserved for someone with a lofty job title, multiple decades of experience. And I want to say to that, baloney. That is baloney. It's not, that is not it at all, right? Totally. Some of the best examples of leadership I've seen in my life have been through soft power or influence. They don't have direct, it's not, maybe even sometimes it's not that they don't have direct control of the situation or the organization, but it's that they don't use the direct method of control. They use the indirect method of influence, which instead of saying, here's the vision here and and here's exactly how to accomplish it. Now follow steps A, B, and C. They say, here's the vision. Talk to me about it, right? Just what does it mean to you? You have a conversation. You contextualize that vision for each individual. And through that, you, you now you have influence because you have that person fighting for the vision themselves instead of just you telling somebody this is what you know this is what we need to do then now you have that person taking it for themselves and acting on it so I, I like the idea of talking about influence here instead of manipulation and to an extent some of the same tactics can be used from an influence perspective as a manipulation perspective. And again, to what we were just talking about, it's about the how and the why when you actually go to use them. Because think about some of the things that Paul Shear, sorry, I can't I keep forgetting to call him Keith. Think about some of the tactics that he uses with Kaboom. 
now while a lot of those tactics would kind of be considered cheap motivation tactics like you said rewarding people with gift cards or buttons or whatever right to an extent he also does it he does a good job of setting the weather as a leader right he sets he really does help motivate people almost to too much of an extent though he over motivates people to the extent that they're going to take it away and they're going to burn out when that motivation like all that fuel that he's throwing on their internal fire of inspiration <laughs> is eventually just like going to burn out and underneath of it you're just going to be left with like the charred ashes and they're going to struggle to be able to pick themselves up from that situation they're going to actually find themselves sometimes maybe less motivated than they were to start with which is the risk of being a, a just a strictly motivational leader right well i i really like that you brought that up because that is the dark side of manipulation you've really nailed it down as far as you get to the what part is really well figured out, whether you got influence or manipulation. But that consumption process is actually what you just detailed. When people find out the truth, they're like, <laughs> and what you're spending there, it's trust, but it's a built-in kind of trust that I think that we all have, which is called goodwill. You're spending goodwill of others. And it's like, it's really down into that decency layer. So trust, I think, is a higher level thing. But I think we've all got a kind of a base level of trust that we come with when we are in a society that's stable and operating. And it's called goodwill, right? We have the goodwill towards someone else. I don't want to run into your car. I don't want to have my door hit your car or whatever. Just thinking about cars because so much of just getting around, right? people wait in lines. That's goodwill for your fellow man. But if someone seriously breaches that, you're, you're burning goodwill. And that is not, you don't want to do that as a leader. You do not want to burn goodwill as a leader. I think that is embarrassing for a leader to do. You get into disavow territory, you know, where people are like, look, I can't have any part of this. Thankfully, Keith was doing good things even then. And I think if someone finds out that it's a prank, I mean, are they really going to get that mad at him? Probably not. I mean, Leslie's probably just disappointed, mostly just disappointed. I can't get Kaboom from my park. Probably drops it there because she's on to the next idea. But <laughs> Let, this is a good transition point into one of our morals, which is something about shortcuts. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to phrase this one yet. Right. But it's like yeah. there's there's I think is it that there's different there's different types of shortcuts. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we were thinking about was that there are different levels of shortcuts. So I think you've got to, it really is a case for balance. You're between one of two poles. I hate to be with the idioms, but you know, this is, I guess this is just something I do. So you can, you can tear it up and make it brand new here in a second. You got haste makes waste, which is the ultra shortcut. Okay. And then you also have the analysis paralysis, or as as you were saying, Drew, just kind of like keeping too many of your options open. But essentially that keeps you stuck because you're like constantly trying to figure out what is the best way. And essentially you're taking no shortcuts. So we like to use extremes to paint the picture to show you what the boundaries are. So when we're trying to make these models for ourselves, we try to think about where are the goalposts at? And then everything in between is where our discernment as leaders needs to play into it. So I think 
tell me where I'm wrong here. This is where kind of manipulation and influence play into it. But the shorter the shortcut, and there are different varying levels of shortness to a shortcut, the higher the risk that something not good is going to happen. Am I wrong? That's, I think, a primitive model that we can operate on. I kind of agree. I haven't fully been able to think through exactly how you're saying that, but I think that I agree with you that the shorter the shortcut, the higher the risk. I, I, I think that's fairly intuitive for people, though obviously sometimes we get infatuated with the destination and we want the shortcut no matter what that shortcut is, right? We're infatuated with getting to a certain promotion level or role at work. And so we'll kind of take whatever shortcut it is, even if it means going to a organization that we don't agree with the value system of or something like that, right? It's like, you seem like you're, you know, you want to make X amount of money in a year, you want to be able to afford certain house. So you just start to make shortcuts. It's especially dangerous in your relationships, right? With, with your spouse or your kids or something like that. You do not, <laughs> do not want to take shortcuts in those relationships. And that is where we can see the downfall of the kaboom method is that he is taking immense shortcuts. He's basically like, there is a whole why at the bottom. And the why is that we we're doing this whole thing for, you know, for the, the, so that we can benefit the kids and, and so that we can benefit underprivileged people and stuff like that. All great, but he's he's kind of shortcutting everything in the middle of the story that he's telling you, and it's just like kaboom! It just <laughs> he takes the whole <laughs> thing and just summarizes it in in one exclamatory word, <laughs> kaboom! And I, I think like we to an extent we we can learn from we can learn from Keith because we do want to have like building in buzzwords and stuff into into our stories is actually really helpful. It's humans like to be able to shortcut things like that. I think that there's like a good example of that in that I know of in like, I, I guess it would be called like ancient rabbinic culture, <laughs> which is a weird thing to be talking about, but this is a wonder tour. And what they would do is there would be common phrases that like rabbis would use. Right. And so these are just wise sages and they would they had these certain phrases. And so they would kind of start to say the phrase, the first few words of the phrase. And then you would know the rest of that phrase. You'd be like, OK, this is you'd immediately like jump to where they were at in the story and be like, this is what they're talking about. Right. Like this is this is the this is the thing that they're, they're that they want us to picture the, the picture that they want us to have in our mind. So I just think that's a kind of an interesting way to look at it. That's just one example I can think of. And so kaboom is kind of like a shortcut like that, but it's just too short of a shortcut. And so it's extremely high risk because you're not actually getting the buy-in from these people. All you did was selling them on showing up that day and then you're gone. It's just a flash in the pan. So I think what we want to do is not say that short, there's never a shortcut. Sometimes you want to create shortcuts but the shortcut, be wary of the shortcut. Like you were saying, there's a balance to leadership. I think that's one of the key takeaways so far for us in our <laughs> in our wonder tour so far, right? Is like there's a balance in leadership. We generally, again, this is general, so not always applicable. We generally think it's good to end up somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. And so that's what we're trying to say here. We're like, sometimes you just need to go through the obstacle. That's the far right side, maybe, of the spectrum. Sometimes there's there is a legitimate shortcut. You can just bring in a vendor that can provide the solution for you. And, you know, you, the shortcut is money. Basically, you could just pay for a shortcut to be able to catch your catch your organization up to speed on something. But 
generally we think that somewhere in the center is better and and it depends on your situation and and we have to learn how to figure that out for ourselves right derek and i think it kind of harkens to uh energy minimization trying to reduce the amount of energy you put into something and that's the essence of good strategy so i think maybe this primitive model works on a single task executed on a timeline but if you start looking at multiple tasks you know executed on a timeline you can you can make these connections between them and you can save the energy and that's when shortcuts are available because of and <laughs> when we get we talk about digital things i'm not going to go into pontificating on digital transformation but we're talking about digital things in general you can reuse them right and there's so much there as far as reuse in a purely physical sense, unless you have a machine involved, there's not much of a shortcut because you have to make the physical thing, then you put the physical thing in place, et cetera. But when it comes to digital, I think there's so. Well, just think, think about, about it in terms that, of tra- right? traveling between point A and point B. Physically, there's no teleportation. We know that that's, as far as we understand, right. completely impossible within the rules of the universe. So you yeah. can't actually teleport. But there are, given enough foresight, and partnerships and wisdom, there are ways to get to that destination faster. You can take a plane or a helicopter or something. But what you do, what you shouldn't do, obviously, is charter. A, you know, you're going to burn everything to the ground in your organization if you just charter a plane every time that you have to go from point A to point B. It's like it's like we're we're going. You know, you're going five miles down the road. You don't need to charter a plane for that. Instead, you need to walk it because that walk is going to teach you something along the way. <laughs> Well, and I think there's a really important lesson you're bringing to mind here, which is you need to spread out your kabooms. If you if you want to use the kaboom as a strategy, I think it's I think it's okay to do. I think it only works in operation. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, as a tactic (laughs) or operational. Well, I was thinking more as operational. To me, I'm like I'm always thinking like strategy, even in operational. Right. So how do I get these people to agree in five minutes? Right. Go. Right. And and so you're off to the races trying to figure out how to get somebody. So I think if you if you consider it's kind of a wild card move, I think if that's how I want to generalize it, I would say a wild card move is kind of how I don't know if Drew, if you're a big player of Uno, but you got to save your draw for and wild for the right moment. And I think that's that's what the kaboom is. The kaboom is definitely one of those spectacle moments. And when you have a spectacle moment, you need to maximize the optics on that as much as possible. And and actually, I talked about this previously about how keeping up optics, you don't really want to keep them up all the time, just like you can't kaboom all the time. He just wants to say that. He wants to make you think that you can. The reality is you can't be kabooming all the time. If he goes to a different town, I mean, this is precisely the reason why kaboom is not a business inside Pawnee. Kaboom is a mobile operation for a reason because it won't be new to the same people tomorrow. And so I think that's the lesson here to take back is when we're talking about shortcuts, when we're talking about doing uh, doing kaboom type stuff, you've got to realize that you can only do that every once in a while. You can only do the spectacle every once in a while. If you are purely a spectacle type leader, you are going to become known for that. It's going to become your reputation. And then people are going to be like, here we go again. There's no substance to this. You don't want to be that guy or gal. (laughs) You don't want to be that person, that leader that everybody says, oh, 
this is purely a dog and pony show. There's no substance. You want to every once in a while have a kaboom moment where you have a prototype, you have some new idea, you have some fantastic thing and counterbalanced on that, you want to have something in your portfolio that you didn't take the shortcuts on. That really keeps people guessing. It really keeps them engaged too, because they say, I can take this person seriously because they did this serious thing over here. And they also have this like kaboom, amazing thing over here. And I think that is truly inspiring to people to be more balanced and level, right? And you don't want to be unbalanced and unlevel. If you go too much to one side, you will be either too slow or too fast. Too fast fizzles out. Too slow doesn't even get going. (laughs) Things change on that person, right? Things change on the ones that are too slow and they don't even, they refuse to kaboom. Right. They refuse. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's the problem is also. Yeah. Yeah. We want to avoid refusing to kaboom, too. So here, let me this is just hitting me now. So I don't even know if this is good or not. But what about a better kaboom, a better. So we, we've talked about this image of the top layer and the bottom layer and the the opaque layer, very dubious layer in between. We don't know how thick it is or what's in there or anything like that. So the kaboom relies on this just like shot out of a cannon from the top layer to the bottom layer that shoots right through the opacity. And it's just like, oh, okay, suddenly we're here. Just buy it now, please. Like if you don't, (laughs) you have to buy it now or it's gone. What about the better kaboom, which is the connected, interconnected top layer and bottom layer? Like you said, you have to build it over time. But if to build a better kaboom is like digging a well, you have to dig that story well that connects together the top layer to the bottom layer. And once you have it, I've had that kaboom before. You've probably had it too. It's kind of crazy. And sometimes it's just luck that you get that kaboom, but it's basically like you can actually, you can create a kaboom moment without cheating the system because you've created a story to go with it. So it's not like you just yell kaboom and everybody's bought in, but it's like, I have a 20 minute presentation, a sales pitch, basically, and, and and the story was just perfect. There's hardly questions at the end. It's mostly just people who are like, oh, just, you know, I agree. Let's do it. <laughs> and it's because you, you've got this succinct narrative together that ties the top and the bottom layer together. And it just makes sense. The gears turn, they click together in people's minds. That's kind of like the better kaboom. Let's play with uh, Keith's organization for a second. Maybe he's got a little bit of narrative and storytelling that goes on and it gets people excited about what a kaboom is. But he keeps things a little esoteric, a little bit far off so that they don't experience the power of the kaboom until they actually have the kaboom moment. And this is how, you know, you kind of peek into that and you get sucked into it because you've done the groundwork to kind of get there. So I think that's that's really good to pull out of this. Is there anything else as we kind of wrap up today and thinking about the lessons, the the morals from this from this story? I think it's just about, you know, in the end, what you're trying to do is you're trying to create inspiration, but you don't want to manufacture it cheaply. You know, you need to create inspiration in yourself and you need to create inspiration in those around you, those that you lead with either soft or hard influence. And the way that we're just kind of looking at potential ways that you can do that and what works and what doesn't work. That's my takeaway at the end here is like, how do we, how do we create genuine inspiration in ourselves and others? I think that's perfect. I think we've, we've got to do it through, I mean, a magnanimous leader does it through influence that has the best in mind for other people. And you can't look at others as being expendable 
or consumable. And remember that the opposite pole to that is manipulating, which essentially is a form of control because you objectify people in that case and you, you're, I'm going to push this person around, I'm going to pull this person around. Influence is you know the same strings are available, but you do it uh, in such a way that you know that it's going to enhance and help grow that person versus you don't care. I mean, did Keith care? I don't know. If you're saying something's a prank, I don't know how much you really care, right? So, and it, and I learned today though that that definitely that there is something to the kaboom method, and that I've I've been involved in those as well. Is that there's these moments where you've got to uh, you got to go for the optics, really. I say shockingly inspire. I think that's the essence of Kaboom here. So all shocking right, well, inspiration. I like it. It's like yeah. a firework. <laughs> yeah. Shocking inspiration. All right. So if you had any thoughts on today's episode that you wanted to share, you can hit us up on Twitter at the wonder tour. Drew for next time. What are we next thinking? Next week, we are coming back with another Nolan people. This is going to be inception. I'm telling you right now, I'm like booking, blocking out my calendar. I'm going to be up all night thinking about this one like for a week <laughs> before we dig into it. So I cannot wait to go on that wonder tour. I'm going to triple dream about it. I'm going to take <laughs> a little bit different tact, end up in a, in a, in a Japanese temple or something on a weird shore. <laughs> so, yeah, I can't wait to talk about it because... Uh, really gets you like thinking about what's real and what's not. I tell you that, that that whole movie, you know, you just you just think through all that. So, all right, as we close out here, remember that not all who wonder are lost. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>